What I do is inconsequential. Why I do what I do is I get to shorten people's journeys every day. What I love about our hospitality industry is that it's our mission to make people feel cared for while on their journeys. Together, we'll explore what hospitality means in the built environment, in business, and in our daily lives. I'm Dan Ryan, and this is Defining Hospitality. Today's guest has worked with Fortune 500 companies and startups. He's introduced groundbreaking concepts to JetBlue's Terminal 5 at JFK Airport and Memorial Sloan Kettering. He's passionate about fostering creativity in the world around him. He's the CEO and founder of I Crave Design. Ladies and gentlemen, Lionel Ohayan. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Dan? I'm great. Um, I just want to let everyone know we used to live right around the corner from each other on 20th and 7th forever. And I've always heard of you. I've had so many friends that have worked for you and just said the best things about you. And you've created some amazing from nightclubs to hospitals to airports, which actually I didn't know about that part until recently because I don't know a lot. Um, and then I, everyone would talk about you. I never, ever saw you. I was beginning to wonder if you actually existed. And then one day we were at dinner, I was with Stacy Shoemaker and you walked in and then I had to give you a hug, even though we'd never met each other before. And it was just like, I was just so happy to have finally met you because we've been in the same circles for so long. I remember that. It was, it was really, it's really an amazing thing. It's like, we live in this culture of people that we love and know, but we don't know, you know, like there's so many people in this industry that I actually hear about, talk about reference but we never actually get to see each other because we're just kind of deep in it. And, uh, and I think when we met out in Lake Tahoe was just like, an for me, it was an amazing moment. I've told that story like 20 times. Well, I want to actually start off with that moment because like I said, in the beginning, I actually, I knew you did JFK. I had no idea you worked on Sloan Memorial, uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering. Um, and what's really interesting when you said that, Oh yeah, we did that. And I want to ask you all about that. But that moment for me, I just got goosebumps. I'm actually getting goosebumps again because my neighbor, he had cancer. He beat it back. And then I think it was about a year ago, he told me, he said, oh, you know, I have to go back in for some extra treatments. Don't worry, everything's okay. And have you been to the new memorial sloan kettering to see it i was like no i don't go to hospitals he's like it's amazing i can't wait to go there and i shared that with you and it, it i was actually surprised by you because you you appreciated hearing that but also i got the sense that you're hearing that so much that it wasn't like this lightning bolt or or bell going off but you've really created something amazing there that you built off of from your jet blue experience and i want you to tell us about it yeah, look, I mean, I was a kid who always wanted to be an architect, right? And when I graduated architecture school, my professors were like, are you sure you don't want to be a film director? Because maybe that's more in your kind of lane. You know? and my work is very theatrical, I guess. And I guess, you know, we broke out in nightclubs and bars and stuff like that. So when we got a phone call from Sloan Kettering to design a hospital, you know, for us, that was just for me. I, mean, I lost my father to cancer, you know, 20 seven years ago, I was a young guy. And it was an incredibly validating moment that, you know, forced me to really search into what it was that I was doing. 
And, and what were people seeing about what I was doing that I clearly didn't understand yet, right? I didn't understand who was going to go out on the limb with the body of work we had to ask us to do a cancer hospital, which to me was like, you know, this is the most important thing I might ever do, right? Well, I know one thing on that, you just said something where it was like, everyone else could see these things kind of leading you into this way. And there's a thing that I've heard over and over saying is like, we're all in our own jar, but we can't necessarily read the label. So I definitely want to hear more about how others helped you read the label. And that's critical. It's just such an important, it's, you know, people say, what's your superpower? And I always say, I can stand beside myself and look at, right. And that's like, get out of your ego, get out of your own central space and look at the perspective from outside. And that was one of those moments where I was like, something's resonating in what we're doing. Now we know we're trying to do something different because our search is a little bit different than a lot of people who do what we do. We're really interested in experience, a motive response that people get, you know, what is the experiential quality of what I'm doing and what my people take out of it on the back end. So that's always been super important for me, but to really um, have a moment where someone's telling you, like, we think you can solve problems for us and we're a cancer hospital. Now your body of work is nightclubs, bars, some hotels, restaurants, and this airport. And what happened was I did an article, I think it was in Fast Company, talking about that airport, where I explained that what we were solving for in the airports was anxiety, right? We got this project for JetBlue Airport, Terminal 5 with JFK. And we were like, what are we solving for? Can we make a cool airport? Yeah, we do cool design and all that. But what's the real issue that we're solving for? We're like, this is post 9-11. This is JetBlue, the first airline that said, I'm not giving you food, so go figure out your food on your own, right? So you had this, you had this kind of paradigm where people had to get to the, uh, the, the airport at least an hour early, deal with TSA, all the stress not. And once they got there, then they had to go figure out food before they got on a plane because then they'd be hungry. So there was like a tremendous amount of stress. And we were like, people are anxious when they travel. And we start to like, well, how do they travel? What do people do? They get through security, the whole TSA thing. We all know what that's all about. And then you get through, you look at the FID, which is a flight information display. And you're like, yes, my boarding pass matches the flight information display. Now, one more thing. Let me actually walk to that gate and make sure that that matches what my boarding pass says, what the flight information display says. Then you say, okay, this is where my plane is taking off. 50% of people will then leave the gate and go get food. Some people will not leave the gate, right? They're just going to stay at that gate two hours, three hours. They want to see that it says on time, Baltimore, four o'clock, and nothing changes. And that's just the nature. Americans are considered gate huggers. That's a whole other conversation. Oh. So we are like solved for anxiety. And one of the things that came out of that was, well, what if people can order food from a gate? Right? Like, why do you have to, why can't we use technology to like break through that problem? And once we were able to start to think that way, and we had a partner who was really interested in getting to the bottom of that in OTG, we were able to say, okay, here's what this thing can be. And here's how the experience of traveling through airports can change. And if we can reduce the anxiety, then we can really create an environment that, uh, that can be compelling, beautiful and compelling and be experiential and be something that's evolutionary. So in, in the outcome of that conversation, I got a call from Sloan Kettering and they said, well, if you guys know how to deal with anxiety, 
let me show you a let me show you a very anxious place, right? We do cancer, and um, and that arguably was, the best, definitely one of the top one or two in the nation, if not the world. Correct? Yeah, definitely. It's an incredible organization. Staff will blow your mind. I, I think you'll see this across most both most healthcare uh, organizations, but. Sloan Kettering, particularly when we met them, they wanted change, right? And we ask our clients, like, what's your threshold for pain, right? People come and they want innovation. You're like, well, it's painful. Innovation is a lot of work. Is a lot of change agency. There's a lot of, like, understanding, like, how your operational model is going to work. Like, you know, we, we made big, big changes with that. And they were prepared for that, which is one of the reasons why it's so successful. They really wanted it. And some people say they want change, but it's like, you know, that meter kind of moves like that. And other people like step on the gas and really give me a change. So it was, it was, it was a really incredible opportunity to work with a, uh, a committed group and be able to sort of like really drop big ideas down and test them. <laughs> give it a break right there. Yeah. So, okay. You're coming from nightclubs. I'm still not clear on how you go from nightclubs and hotels and restaurants to designing to reduce anxiety. Like how did that, how did that inspiration come? Like, where did that come from? It came from understanding what problem are you solving, right? When we, when we were doing nightclubs, we were like, how do I make someone relinquish their inhibitions to find out something new about themselves? Right. That's what we were trying to do. How do I erase the line between spectator and spectacle? How do I actually make you feel like you are an active participant in this, in this circus, right? Which is a, a nightclub. And so we were, we were trying to unpack the journey of the thing, right? And the kind of like the using the thing as a vehicle for self-realization. And I think that might sound lofty, but it's not. That's how we were thinking through the problem, right? And, you know, I, I, you know, another example of that is a Disney cruise ship we worked on when we had to solve for the teenagers, right? Teenagers get brought on the cruise ship. You can imagine if you're 17 years old, you probably have an eight-year-old and seven-year-old brother or sister, and your parents are like, we're going on a Disney cruise ship, right? Now, everybody might be happy about that, but the teenagers, teenagers are like, this is a disaster. Like, I, I can't tell my friends at school I'm going on a cruise ship or uh, Disney. So you have this reluctant participant coming onto this ship and we're like, how do we use that cruise ship to be a filter? So when they come on the ship, they might be reluctant. When they get off it, they're a self-realized artist who created something. And that's, we can have a podcast about that, but it's really about leveraging Disney's partners, understanding how one can learn to make a movie, be a DJ, uh, create something and how to connect people early. This is a really big part of what we did. I am really focused on, Design is a is a physical and a and a virtual and social kind of effort, right? There's all those parts have to work, right? Your first experience of Sloan Kettering is going to be like, oh my god, I just found out I had cancer, and you hit Google. That's where it starts, right? And then you thought what we call Doctor Google in, in the healthcare world, and somehow you're going to find yourself to a portal that's called MSK. That portal needs to be part of the experience of the physical place, and then when you bring it home, it has to be connected. The same thing happened with cruise ships where we said, well, most people buy their tickets for cruise ships like a year in advance, eight months in advance. So we know which teenagers are going to be on the cruise ship together a long time before they all get on it. And we have the opportunity to introduce them to each other through Facebook at that time, MySpace, and be like, 
why don't you let these kids get to know each other? So by the time they get on the ship, they don't spend three days on a seven-day cruise being cliquey and hiding in different corners as teenagers do, and actually use that to connect so that the experience unfolds very fluidly early, right? So we're already like, how do we get to the point where the, the, the physical places we are, are building are platforms for, for real social experiments or, or interactions to happen? It's the same, same thing that happened at, at MSK. Um, Lionel. So these almost like life, well, tremendously, incredibly life moments, like you're dealing with life, living, achieving your ultimate self-realization, relinquishing all inhibitions, dealing with life and death. Um, like how, how does that inform what your definition of hospitality is in from really Disney cradle to Memorial Sloan Kettering grave? How do you define hospitality as you've gone through this journey? It's a very, very good question. Um, and you know, I'll start unpacking that by saying that I'm born into a hospitality family. Not a hospitality family because we were in the restaurant hotel business, but because we come from a culture that's foundational on hospitality on, on receiving people receiving guests on on doing events your home is like a open arm place to receive people and to to share in community and to be an extension of a community and i tell clients so often like i can gild your place in gold right but if you don't understand the essence of hospitality right of what the triggers are to make people feel comfortable or to or to allow people those opportunities to step through the looking glass and learn something new about themselves, right? To experience, you know, color in a way that they haven't because you, you are leading, you actually are, you have an expectation about what the emotional response would be, right? Or what the inputs are of place that is more about placemaking than about, than about understanding the way things look and feel. And I think that, I think that hospitality today is critical it's an ever-growing important piece of the, the the human interaction that we're all concerned about, right? We're all concerned about our kids and you know being in front of screen time and what does that human interaction actually mean? So our job and what we do is to create opportunities, create platforms to enhance that social interaction, right? So if it's a dinner table at a restaurant. You know, we talk about that that space being around a candle. That candle in the middle of your table at dinner is literally this campfire, right? So that's like one of the spatial elements. One of the qualities of hospitality is all these spaces around this table being lit by that central candle or by a light that's reflecting off that plant. That's space A. Space B is the space that your your group is sitting in with other groups. And those kind of understanding of the intimacy of those spaces and how they interplay. And then Futzing with them, right? Like actually saying, you know what? I'm going to move these guys into these other people's space, right? Why? Because I want haphazard encounter. Why? Because I want people to meet people. I want them to do it in a way that they don't understand why whenever they go to that place, they meet new people or, or they have to squeeze through a bar or there's enough room to get through without interrupting someone. Those are parts of like a bigger understanding, I believe, that I think a lot of hospitality designers intuitively understand about what kind of interaction you're actually hoping to get as an outcome. And those outcomes are really about 
you know, an emotive response. Like some people are having some sort of found, you know, fundamental memory of that place where they were. And one of the things you'll hear me say, you might like my R spaces or hate them, but you're going to remember them, right? That's what we're kind of striving for. I love the idea of being gathered around a, a candle because in many of the restaurants and nightclubs that I've been in, that you, that you and I crave have done, it's so intense and life out loud, but there are those moments of warmth and um, kind of shared experience. And that little candle, it's interesting because that's so delicate. Um, to me, I, always, I would think of hearth and that idea of a feeling and a candle is really just that. And it's interesting, like if you look at it on a scale, you have your your can this candle of this really delicate thing, but then like a Disney cruise ship or a nightclub or a, or a STK or something, it's just so crazy loud. And to find that balance is pretty amazing. How did you how did you come to that? You know, I don't know the answer to that question. I'm like one of those people who was always, you know, asked my third grade teacher and she's like, Do I want to become an architect? You know, it's like I was always in predisposed without choice into this kind of um, into this craft. Um, but we certainly, certainly have honed those experience of uh, those, those, those talents as a team. Um, and we are very much a collaborative. It's a team of, you know, some of the team members here, right? A team of yeah. really, really talented, smart people who unfortunately when they work here are forced to show up with ideas, right? Like this is not, my my little fiefdom of ideas, right? There's like the only thing you have to do here is you have to show up with ideas, right? Well, our mantra here is you'll never get an A if you're afraid of getting an F. So if the expectation is that you're coming here to participate and and to test ideas and to fail and to try it again and and figure it out. And I think that like like SDK is a good example. Like there's like this, we, we, we landed on this idea of this multiplicity of experience, right? You go into this jamming ballroom, everyone's got a big rambunctious bar right in the middle of it. It's loud and overwhelming. And right next to it's a little wine bar, kind of like a little cozy spot, right? In the front, there's a bistro. In the back, there's what we call a carpet with the big tables and the booths and the big wines. And right in the middle of all that, there's a DJ, right? And that DJ, like when we started it, you know, I can't tell you 20 years on where they're at, but when we started, we were super focused on what music they were playing at what time, based on what demographic of clientele that we thought we wanted in there and what kind of like energy we were looking for. So we were solving for, I want to go, where is that place I go where there's action at the bar? Where can they go for a big birthday dinner? Where can we go just grab a glass of wine, right? And then there's the rooftop and the private rooms. And so you're kind of like creating this machine that's like your go-to place. And quite frankly, when we started SDK, we had no idea it was going to be a steakhouse. We were really? designed, finished, not quite finished. It was laid out fully. We completely understood the workings of it. And as we were developing it, what was happening was we were looking for a mixer, like a New York mixer circa 2007 or eight or whatever year that was. And looked at places like, what are those places that our clients looking for that actually do it well? Like people would be on the phone, like, where do you want to go for dinner? I don't know. Where do you want to go? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Right. And then people would always land on like five places. Oh, let's go to Tao. You know, like, 
It's fun there. There's, you know, there'll be a scene, there'll be music, right? It's kind of a catch-all. Like, well, what are these places all doing really well that solved for that? We got steak because during the time that we were developing that, that, um, that concept, women were eating the Atkins diet, right? So it was the first time that steak with the, and protein was the basis for health, really. Everyone was like, lots of protein, no carbs. And we said, well, you know, every steakhouse in the world is kind of like the old boys club. What, why can't we use this new kind of food trend as a foundation for creating this place where we can reinvent the steakhouse in a new way? But fundamentally, those spaces were designed for experiential outcomes, not the fact that it's a steakhouse, so what, that we wanted energy off the bar, that we want to separate the carpet from the bistro, and we want to have a little tuck-away bar and all that stuff. So I think we've like, we've really gotten, um, I think really skilled at like understanding how people use space, how people think about why they should go to a place or whatnot. That's probably a good example. Wow. I'm actually, that's totally amazing that it was not a steak place to begin with. And thank you for giving us some temporal context there. Um, when you talk about that idea, giving the, allowing all of these opportunities to step through the looking glass and have others lose inhibition, if you were to go back through the catalog of all of the spaces that you've built and designed, what's a, what's your favorite example of actually you being in there and seeing someone lose all inhibition and just have like the time of their life? I mean, I know the first time I really, really reacted to it um, was when we built Crowbar. And I think for me, part of that was just this incredible, this incredible journey, right? Like that you, um, you have an idea, right? And you get the, you, you have this unique opportunity because of what you do to drop that idea onto paper, right? And then get someone to say, yes, great idea. Then go through the process of figuring out how to detail it, how to draw it, right? How to make sure it's lit and know how the crowd's gonna flow through the room, right? And then to see people in the space, right? Actually using it the way that you thought about when you're sketching it on that, on that trace paper, it's just an incredibly rewarding um, profession in a lot of ways. It's like an incredible opportunity to be able to be creative and see those outcomes. And I'll never forget, you know, opening week in a crowbar, being up on the second level and seeing what we call the uh, the penalty box, which is like a little island on the dance floor. People just kind of like sit, you know, we would do these drawings of like a banquette with what we call a jump seat. So there's a spot to sit on the back. And then beyond that, there'd be somebody standing on the back and someone sitting on the back and someone standing on the seat and people in front. And we draw these sections with people at all different levels. And we're like, yeah, we're creating a mini kind of stadium at each table because this is a kind of, and just seeing like people up dancing on the tables and, and being, and, 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 and looking at, um, at uh, Siobhan and just being like, you see, that's what we thought was going to happen. Right. And just kind of high-fiving each other and being like, this is so fantastic. So that's, that's like, kind of like, you know, that's where we were. We were like nightclub post Giuliani. We happened to be at the right spot at the right time. Uh, and boom, boom, boom. We did like, I don't know, seven, eight, nine nightclubs in New York between 2001 and or 2000 and 2008, maybe I don't know, a lot, we did a lot. Uh, 
And then that's when you have to experiment with getting like bulletproof Kevlar backed behind the upholstery. So high heels don't poke through it, all the seating. We, we know all the tricks. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and you know, it's interesting because now our work is airports, you know, nightclubs, uh, we're doing stadiums, we're doing, um, you know, cruise ships. These are like high traffic. We're like, we got it. We understand how to do high traffic. And we also understand through night, there's a lot that nightclub. When I did my thesis in architecture school, basically a nightclub it was a theater because you have to like frame it in the, in some sort of a, uh, intellectual way, but it's really a nightclub. And I think like when, when I, when I was like, okay, I left architecture school and started my business right away. I was like, a nightclubs afforded you the opportunity to have license to be creative, right? Without somebody telling you how it's supposed to be or not. They're like looking for you to be super creative, right? So it was a natural spot for someone who's, whose professors were like, maybe you should be in film to be like, let's go do that. That's a fun stop and let's go get somewhere where we have real license to build what we want to build. And we've learned a lot from that. Personally, that we, um, we were really pushing engagement. We were pushing flow, engagement, uh, journey, delight. You know, like how do you design for delight, right? How do you create moments of, 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 of haphazard encounter and, non, and, 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 and sort of like stepping across something you wouldn't expect and all that kind of theatrical kind of like positioning and whatnot has really, I think, helped us a lot in, in these other verticals that we're working in right now. The emotion of delight is such a powerful thing. And I, I definitely see it in so many of your projects. One of the questions after our, we were eating dinner in, uh, in Tahoe together and that I have for you is, okay, we've seen for 25 or 30 years or even longer, this tsunami of aging baby boomers, right? Who are all in their like seventies plus now, they all are going to need healthcare why is it that the for instance the work that you've done at uh at kettering that that kind of idea of delivering delight has not transcended more of healthcare uh, to me hospitality and healthcare should go hand in hand but it there just seems to be this uh, this iron curtain separating them and it's just having a really hard time coming together what do you think is holding that back it's funny, you said hospitality and healthcare, but it's hospitality and hospital, right? They're really the same root word. Um, you know, we still feel like, you know, we're working with St. Jude's now, which is fantastic. And um, we are in doing another project with Sloan Kettering and we work with hospital for special surgery and we have some other hospitals that we're trying to get in. Well, even, and I've been working in a lot for a long time in healthcare, but we still feel like, you know, I feel like there's like this big glass ecosystem and we're standing outside of it, tapping on the glass, right? It's like, it's a whole world and it's got legacy relationships and it's got, you know, there's a lot of like practical things that the people on boots on the ground need to worry about, the people who are actually operating these places. And so I think it's filtering in very, very slowly. You know, it's like you're starting to see a big investment in technology and te technological innovation in hospitals. We tried, we tried to, to, to find a, um, a, 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 like a, an armchair next to a bed in a patient's room that turned into a sleeper, right? 
And I literally said at the time, I said, I should drop every project I'm doing and just solve for this one hospital. Oh my God. I, we had three kids up at, uh, at St. Luke's, uh, near Columbus circle. And I remember that lounge chair that would convert into a little bed. And I just remember waking up in the morning, just so tired and just the greasy, dirty arms. And it was just filthy. Yeah. I had a nice sheet, but these things are just filthy and nasty and not comfortable. What, what's your idea on that one? Cause that thing, I, I spent too many nights in that. It's crazy. It's just a function of like eyes and attention to detail on these individual pieces that need to be solved. And just for so long, you know what? It's like when we did airports, every gate hold was just like, let's go put these airport seats in every gate hold and we'll warehouse all this furniture. And, you know, we were like, why don't we monetize gable and turn them into like revenue streams for non-aeronautical revenue and create like these follies for guests to like come and explore the airport a little bit and burn an hour and enjoy it. I think it just is like, it's just like a door has to open. The lights got to get turned off, you know? And I think you're, I think you're going to start seeing a lot more of it. A lot more hospitals are, are, and I think when you talk about the baby boomers and aging, baby boomers have a different psychographic than our parents did when they were that age, right? They, they're young because they're exposed to so much, there's so much information that I don't think people, are aging at the same kind of like, you know, like age equals old kind of rate. So the expectation I think for this generation that's aging is to have access to experiences, right? Like I, we see more and more that what millennials and baby boomers want are not that different. They're still, they want to travel. They want experiences. They want to be close to, you know, different foods and trying new things. So I think it's going to be very, very interesting. It's a great space, by the way. To understand what that kind of like the new housing solution, what are like neighborhoods going to look like, you know, for, you know, and, and ultimately I think good cities have, you know, different demographics all living in the same area together. That's, that solves a lot of problems. We used to believe that you take people who need to go to an old age home and push them off far away down some country road, down a long driveway. That's where the aging go. And then, your kids go to some care, daycare, right? And what happens to people like you and me, we got to pay for the, we got to pay for the old age home and we got to pay for the daycare, right? And nobody's able to be with anybody. And you're like, well, why don't we just pull all these demographics together? Maybe my grandmother could take care of my kids, right? You know, it's like, so I think there's a lot of thinking going on right now about reinventing that kind of like that system where, it takes a village is, is, is a real truism. It's funny as you're saying all that, I just, the idea of shopping at Costco just came into my head because again, there's this whole cradle to grave and Costco, you can buy diapers and you can buy coffins and all things in between. So they got you covered. Yeah, exactly. We actually work with a company called uh, Compass Group. Um, it's a food service company. And we're looking at the future of higher education because they're on, they're on university campuses. And when we got to know, we realized that they're like, no, we're in your entire life. We're in the hospital when you're born, right? We serve food from K to 12. We're in universities. We're in your office space. We do like corporate, you know, uh, corporate uh, dining halls. And we're in old age homes. And they literally span the entire, the entire cycle of life through the wild. Uh, Lionel, one of the things that, one of the many things that struck me in our conversation um, at, in Lake Tahoe um, going back to this idea of delight. I don't know how many listeners have um, 
had a loved one go through chemotherapy, but you're really just sitting there for hours and hours getting a drip, right? And you're just sitting there, maybe you're reading, maybe you're just watching TV. But the I loved your different approach at Sloan Kettering. Instead of just being idle, walk us through what the difference was. Yeah. So we tried to reframe the brand for them in a way that we could understand how we could change their the experience at a, at a foundational level. That was super important to us. It's sort of like what we learned in the airport. It's like, if you don't solve for the why, then you're not getting to the real answer. We learned that people who are inspired have better outcomes. And we really, we, we, we really clamped onto that. Right? Like people, you know, I remember when my father was sick, I read a book and it's, it was called, I think it was called Why Me? You know, and, and the, whole, the whole idea of the book was like, you got to change the paradigm from why me to try me, right? Like, I, I, I'm ready for this. I'm going to take this on. And if you can get people to move from that kind of like victim, when you are a victim, you got, so you find you have cancer, you're a victim. And it's very understandable that one would feel that way to being empowered to say, try me. I got this. I got my armor on and I'm ready to go. And so we're like, okay, well, I'm not a doctor. So we, we can't do the healing part. Like that's, that's MSK best doctors in the world, you, you go to that cancer facility and you get the best cancer treatment you can get. But outside of that, there's a whole, we understand, you know, um, uh, we, we empower, we inspire, this kind of like wrapper around it that everything that I do, that's not the healing part, the actual doctor part of it can be a fundamental uptick in the way that people feel so that they get, so that they're, they're going to have better outcomes. So we said, what if the best thing that ever happened to me was that I got cancer, right? And, you know, it's kind of, I think we put a, a sticker on the wall in one of our sessions said, thank God I have cancer, right? And we were obviously being provocative. In we front of who? Uh, walk, us through, walk us through that. Like you're saying, oh, I wish I had cancer. That's crazy. So we said, we, are, we had our team at, at Sloan Kettering in the studio for one of our deep dives. And we do these deep dives with our clients to really break open um, creative thinking, right? And so they came in the room and I said, you know, thank God we have cancer. Thank God I have cancer. And, you know, I'll, we were making a case that. How did they react to that when your clients walked in? Again, when we said, what's your threshold for pain? They said, pain. Like, all right, so let's talk, honestly, right? Like, we don't have to, uh, but they got it, right? We were like, well, what if, what if this window opens in your life, in the middle of your life, right? And all of a sudden, like, if you're going to, if you have a cancer, the facility we were doing is in pay, um, outpatient, infusion, radiation, chemo, right? What that means is you're probably signed up for a year, maybe two years several times a week, several hours a day. Now, the only thing that I can think of that signs you up like that is college, right? It's like enrolling into college. And to your point, the way it is right now, you show up, you sit in a green chair in a fluorescent room with lay and tile, and you sit there and you think about your demise, right? Because it's impossible to think about anything else. So we're like, well, what if this window opened in your life? And what if you took this opportunity for this window that opened in your life to actually reinvent yourself or to create something new or to learn things that you didn't have an opportunity to learn? Maybe you're going to write a book. 
maybe you're gonna learn a new language, maybe you're gonna maybe you're gonna be a Photoshop expert, make a whole uh, photo journal about your life, whatever it is. Like you have a platform now that allows you for a moment to actually be a proactive, you know, we say uh, uh, like like the uh, we say that you've got to be you've got to be the the hero in your own rescue. You know what I mean? And so in doing that, we were not being facetious in so much as we were being provocative to ask the question, what could this do? What could this time mean for you? And how can this facility not just be here to put a needle in your arm, but actually bring you to a place that gets you inspired, that will then inspire other people who come after you, right? And leave your story for somebody else so that they feel like they're not out there in the wind by themselves. Someone's been this before, they made it through, and I'm going to make it through this thing as well. And so from then forward, every decision we made was about understanding how do we give people control back to their lives? Number one, you lose all control of your life, right? You lose your, your calendar, you lose your diet, you lose, everything's changed and you have no control over it. So simple things like being able to pick a spot to sit. That's not one of the 87 brown chairs in the waiting room, right? Is like, I can go sit over there or I can pick to be on this floor. And what we did is we used technology to allow us the opportunity to do that stuff. So everybody in that's Solar Kettering has a RTLS pin on them, which means it's a real-time location service. So, you know, you and I don't need to sit near a, a, a doctor's clinic door waiting for him to call our name. You could be anywhere in the hospital enjoying, you know, microbiotic, not microbiotic food uh, demonstration or a lecture or being on the treadmill or doing yoga or whatever it is because we just eliminated waiting rooms. We're like, there's no waiting anymore. Technology solved that. When they need me, they'll come find me on the sixth floor. They know exactly where I am in space. And now I can activate those spaces to create engagements. And so we said, what if people came here early? What if people looked forward to coming to this place? Or what if they even stayed late? What if they built some of the greatest relationships in their lives because they weren't sitting beside somebody at a clinic. They were on the fifth floor doing a, a yoga program or, or in a library or a book reading club or whatever. And so that starts to sort of unlock a whole possibility. And really, it's just leveraging, um, leveraging the, the understanding of what is curative and the understanding of how technology can break open some of the processes that we're used to. I love the idea of bookends um, for, to describe things. And, you know, when you, when you say that people would look forward to going to get their treatment because they could do all these other things and be inspired and be the hero in their own journey, I look at that one side with my neighbor, Andrew, who he's like, I love this place. I love going there, even though it's for such a dark, like, I don't know, you're, it's, yeah. it's such a dark experience dealing with your own mortality. And then I look at the other side where my dad, he was in Florida. He went to some like cancer center for America in a strip mall that he hated going to. He just absolutely hated. And so much of healing is you know, being engaged and understanding the why and, and really being inspired. You said those who are inspired have better outcomes. And maybe through this whole conversation, um, when you took, when I, my question was like, what's holding hospitals or healthcare back from helping engage and really heal and create this candle or hearth of warmth of hospitality. <clears throat> maybe it's because because of those calcified relationships and just the way that they've been doing things forever, 
and it's a huge industry, maybe they just haven't figured out that they, what their threshold for pain is. And maybe they haven't, except for the few leaders of the St. Jude's, the Hospital for Special Services, Memorial Sloan Kettering, maybe they're approaching or passing their threshold for pain. Because I really believe that all good things and all growth comes from pain. I agree with that 100%. I think about that now with my three young kids. I'm like, how much of a struggle is the right amount of struggle? So they, you know, they, they understand the value of everything, right? Like they need, you know, I'll tell you a very personal thing. When, when, when I came home from my thesis, I, I graduated my thesis. I found out my father was sick that day. The hospital called and said, we have a bed for you. And I was like, what's going on? I didn't know. Cause they were sheltering me. Cause I was in the middle of my architectural thesis and everything. I was like, I'm going to drive him down to the hospital myself. And I parked the car and we, we turned towards the hospital and he stopped and he looked up at the hospital. He was like, a, I don't know, five, six, seven, 10 second pause, maybe. He put his head down and he walked in. And I was like, oh, shit. Right? Like, I was like, I saw, I saw exactly, I saw exactly what he had already understood. Right. Like this is, he, he's like, I'm not coming out of that. Right. And it was, a, it was just that thing that just like thrown a memory in my brain. You know what I mean? Totally. And I just feel like, you know, I'm Canadian, by the way. I feel like in America, it's the good and bad of the whole healthcare system is, you know, it's super transactional in a lot of ways. It's a business. Right. And I think that. That's good for some people in some hospitals and it's really bad for others. But mostly I think once some of these things become more commonplace, everyone's going to have to pick it up because it is business. And we have to keep up with the ones who are doing well. So the trailblazers like Sloan Kettering, right? St. Jude's obviously incredible facility. These are people who are, you know, they're, they're, they're vested. The people in those organizations are extraordinary. And I, I do mean this, I've never met any organizations in healthcare where I haven't just been blown away by the commitment of people. But this thing's got to move forward because there's so much that is going gonna, is gonna to change in healthcare. So much of this is happening at home, man, right? So much yeah. of like the requirement for you as a caregiver to solve it at home. And we have to find a way that, um, that we're able to really take it on at a, at a much deeper level. Um, so that people can get through this and, you know, like it's unfortunately there's more people and more hospitals and more need for this stuff. So I, I'm super jazzed that we're in the space. And when I hear stories like your neighbor, Andrew, it gives me chills, right? Because it's the, it's the reason why we do what we do. You know, we want to, we want to make change. Yeah. He, that, that connection of when you said that it was, it was really a lightning bolt. And, you know, going on to the uh, transactional nature of healthcare at, in America, and I assume in a lot of places, I saw this shocking graph in an article I was reading uh, within the past couple of weeks, where if, you know, on the graph, it showed the number of physicians was this flat line of uh, along the y-axis of just whatever. And the number of administrators was exponentially grow, uh, exponential growth above that. And it was almost asymptotic to whatever the, the datum of the number of physicians were. And that's just insane. And if you think about creating these spaces and, and these 
warm areas of healing and inspiration, I mean, people feel more in control of their outcomes. The other, and, the other thing that's yeah. important about that graph, I'm sorry to interrupt you. The, no. the other thing that's important about that graph is it took all those doctors and if this span is across America, where those doctors are now, where those hospitals are, because it's a business, like there's these rural deserts with no physicians, right? It's a massive problem. It's like one of the things that we don't understand about why certain people didn't get vaccinated. We're like, there are vast, vast swaths of America where there is no facility to administer a real program. Um, and when you come, that's you know, when it comes to like cancer, that's a that's a real issue. It's a real yeah. issue to find a place to get the proper care. As you were saying that, it made me think of Michael J. Fox, who just raised a billion dollars for Parkinson's research. And he was in a movie in the 80s called like Doc Hollywood. And the big, the big conflict was he's a big city, he's from Hollywood but he found love and life and community in these rural towns, which really are a desert and devoid of healthcare. Yeah, it's a problem. So thinking about where we are and all the, thi all the things that you're doing and the projects you're working on, and it's really exciting stuff. I mean, it's really incredible and inspiring. Um, what's keeping you up at night? What's keeping me up at night is America. Honestly, I mean, I look at my wife as American. I'm just like, what? Where is this going? Yeah. Um, the, the, I have three young kids, two, four, and six. I'm just like, I don't know. It's I just don't understand. It's it, there's no scenario in my brain that says that this just kind of fizzles out and everyone hugs it out and says it wasn't that crazy, right? Just does not feel like. Um, I, I don't think. You know, the educate the opportunity for education, um, this kind of toxic conversation that won't go away, the this kind of insane manufactured wealth that you're seeing all around. You know, I don't want to be a dark, but it's what keeps me up in it. I don't understand neighborhoods, you know what you know, I'm in Miami now and 50% of the population of Miami is food insecure. They don't know where all their meals are coming for in a given week, 50%, right? You have this incredible, incredible affluence on this one end. And then it's just like, it's very, very, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it concerns me because as we are today and hopefully this will break, I just don't see a path forward. I don't, I don't see it kind of like evolving into something um, positive. I think, you know, as you're saying it, you, you struck me when you said people who are inspired have better outcomes. I feel like we're just missing that level of inspiration and shared sense of community right now. And it's really heartbreaking. Yeah, it's really heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking that even through January 6th and everything else, it's still everything polarizes. And there's a, pa a pandemic polarizes. Everything can be polarized. And um, I, don't know, I don't know how it breaks. I'd love to be part of that fix. Like I'd love yeah. to figure out how to be part of the conversation that 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 makes that you know go away in some or, or just solve in some way. I think so much of that polarization too is backward looking. It's not forward looking. I, I keep talking about this Star Trek future and I just don't know how we get there. I feel like the work you're doing in airports and hospitals are really a part of that puzzle. And I think well, it's about reducing anxiety and, and inspiring. Well I think to, to to that point, to people listening and people in the hospitality world, like the physical engagements 
that we have the opportunity to participate in are incredibly important. Right? They're so important for reasons that us growing up can't even imagine. Like kids don't, kids have a much harder time interacting with other kids because they're spending so much time doing digitally that that human interaction is not native to them, right? Like we used to joke before we got married, it was like after I got married, Tinder and all these kind of like dating apps came out. I was like, ah, that's like cheating, right? Like that's so easy. You got to swipe left, right? Yeah, meet me at four o'clock, meet me in the middle of the night. Like it's crazy. Sounds exhausting. But you know, like there's just like, there's real opportunity to like, profoundly enhance our world. You know, there is something that I saw in 60 Minutes this week about deep fakes. I don't know if you saw that segment. Mm. But they're freaky. They're freaky. And But what they can do is, I started to think that the internet will consume itself in a way that the deep fakes on, you know, actual visual fakes and voice fakes are so real and we're so, it's still nascent, still an early, early uh, moment in development of how good those will get, might just make everybody completely distrust anything that is not purely physical. They'll be like, nope, don't believe it until get in the room, let's talk it through. Other than that, I don't know who I'm talking to. I don't know if this is real or not real. So if the deep fakes become so real, then we've kind of solved a big part of the problem because you because you 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 need to hope that everybody will then be like the only way I'm going to believe this to be true is to actually see you in a physical world again, and that's yeah. what will like let that whole kind of this kind of pressure between our physical and digital realities kind of like uh, fall apart. And we're 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 deep into understanding what the metaverse is and how the metaverse is part of our design cycle and all that kind of stuff. So I'm pretty I'm pretty on top of trying to figure all that stuff out. So it's interesting you bring that up too. I'm I'm on the advisory board of this. It's called the Hotel of Tomorrow. And I'll, we can talk about it offline. But part of it, there's a whole um, virtual reality component to it. So all of the board advisors and sponsors got these Oculus headsets. And I just got mine the other day. And it was the first time I've ever actually used it. And it is just insane. And it's, it's so nascent right now. But that idea of the metaverse is really freaky and i i i'm more hopeful that the idea of these deep fakes will help the internet and distrust and the polarization kind of eat itself yeah because i i don't want to go to that place of ready player one where no one wants to leave you know or wally or that that it's very dystopic future like i love the crucible of the spaces that we're a part of that promote these collisions of people and i i i do not want to lose that that you're going to have to fight for it. And I think that as a Canadian looking in, I've always been like fascinated with America. I've been fascinated with the experiment that is America. I don't think Americans understand that this is just a big experiment, right? It can, and I think that that's these are one of the things like this kind of free reign on the internet to do whatever and say whatever is, is an assault on what the ideal is for what this can be and should be. And I don't think people get that should be part. It's like, what is the vision? What is the inspired vision? And sometimes, you know, I if it's it's I Canada's just a, a you know a border away. And people argue Canada's a better place than this, that, and the other. But there's something elemental about this kind of idea of America 
that you have to fight for it. You actually have to really be like, no, I'm not just going to be passive. I'm not going to sit in camp and will not listen to the other side. You got to fight for it. And I think it's the same thing about the world you want your kids to live in. It's like inside the four walls of your home is where it starts. Now I'm in a group of uh, professionals in, in Miami and, you know, we get together and talk about business issues and personal issues. And two of the guys have 11 year old and eight year old kids. And they're just the conversation that they're dealing with front of mind that they want a table in the fraternity environment of safe voices. It's, it's about their kids getting all screwed up because of their time on the screen. Right. And you're like, well, yeah, everyone's fighting that right now. There's like a certain point where, you know, there's a tipping point where you we're either going to get a hold of it or not. And I started rewatching. Yeah. I st when you say that this idea of America is an idea and an experiment, it truly is. And I started rewatching Ken Burns civil war documentary, which is 20 plus years old. And in it, um, he, at the very beginning, he, he does, he reads this quote of Lincoln, where he basically says like the largest armies of Europe and Asia would not never be able to drink from the Ohio river or something like that. And, um, because we have these massive bodies of water and we have Canada and Mexico, like friendly neighbors, they would never do it. The, the death of America will be a suicide or come from within. Yeah. And, and he fought for it. He fought for it in a major way. And to keep that experiment going. And I just, I, I don't know. I just hope we don't get there, but now I, I can't even think about that to think about the, are, are we, are we too dark? Are we taking like a dark turn in this conversation? Well, I think it's something important to, to think about because if you think about like, when you say you have to fight for it, I guess in a way I am fighting for it. like, I'm helping build these communities, right? I'm helping to build these, um, collision points. I'm help or gathering places. I'm helping to get the story of what you're doing and other um, designers and architects and business leaders and entrepreneurs are doing. So, you know, hopefully we can all create this future. Like I, I love building communities. I'm involved in a lot of different um, elements that, that do that, that foster this with mostly with entrepreneurs. Cause like we're used to creating something out of nothing. And I feel like, this is my own little way of doing that. Sure. That's that's all. And by the way, kudos. And I do agree with you. And I think it's, it's just, there's like this idea. I remember when, remember when President Bush, the second one after 9-11 had this kind of civic commitment. He was trying to like, um, it was post 9-11 and he was trying to promote this, you know, community involvement that that was part of the program of building America again of all the presidents in the world that you wouldn't expect it right it was kind of like coming from you know I think a Christian Christian faith kind of like idea that you can give back and like maybe there was a way that college kids could like have that as part of their experience of going through college all these things need to be reinvented like for like pandemic this taught us more than anything like is school you know 10 months a year should kids be in school nine to five or whatever those parts are. And then like, what does it actually mean? You don't do, you don't do like uh, civic duty. There's no civic duty in America. There's no responsibility. You see it in the pandemic right now, people are like, I'm not wearing masks for you. Like there's no sense that you have to do anything. It's all personal. And I think it's just, it's like this kind of like boil the ocean one cup at a time. Like everyone's got to do their part. And, I think more than anything, we just have to find a way to 
have a conversation. Like there's got to be a conversation that's not so toxic. You start there. We can't get through that, right? Like if Congress can't actually have a conversation, who can? I think it's it's conversation. It's creating moments of inspiration through mentorship, through communities, through anything that fosters human connection and shared inspiration. So going from the dark, like what's keeping us up at night to like, what's, what's exciting you most about the future, Lionel? My kids. Um, now I think, look, there is an incredible, there's an incredible opportunity to, uh, build this world in a way that is much, much more accessible for more people than ever before. And to identify it in a, in a, in a way that right now where you have this kind of identity politics and you have a lot of questions about uh, who has rights to be however they want to be. And, and you know, we all obviously support everyone's uh, desire to be what they want to be, but I think it's still kind of in its early phase. Like I, want, I want to make sure that transgender is not uh, discriminated against. And I think that that's exactly where we need to be at this point in, in the evolution of mankind. But I think it's going to be, a, I think we have an opportunity for people to be a lot more, once that's accepted, we get through all that, if we ever do, imagine what you can do in a future where in a metaverse, you can present yourself as anything you want to be. The sense of reinvention, the sense of like opportunity, the sense of like taking risks, right? That you then can not necessarily have to wear your, your armor, which is your daily kind of skin on you and go and present yourself and figure out in the, in, in the meritocracy kind of manner who's actually got chops and bring something to the table. So I see like this kind of like opportunity for a cross-pollinization of ideas, a cross-pollinization of cultures to bring up a much, much better kind of world that's sort of like richer and more dynamic. You know, some people see that as like a homogenization of all things. I don't see it that way. And I, again, like to talk about the Canadian American experience in Canada, we, it's like a mosaic, right? We think of, Canada is a mosaic people. No one says I'm an Italian Canadian. They just say I'm Italian, right? In America, you're an Italian American, a Polish American. So everyone holds on to their cultural pieces and somehow it all kind of like fits together in a kind of like a, a quilt kind of matter. And yeah, I think here, this country is fighting this idea of like immigration and, you know, all these, all these sort of silly parts that it's going to break through. And you're going to see this country that continues to sort of like effervesce with new ideas and new new kind of typologies, innovations. And I really do think that technology is going to break through that because in some way it's going to put a mask in front of everybody and then unmask the whole thing. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I do believe in America like more than any other place in the world. It's just like this kind of like with everything that's going on, it's just a spirit for new, spirit for invention spirit for trying new ideas, spirit for failure, right? It really is an unbelievable place. And, and that's what keeps it kind of, you know, moving forward. I, I actually am very, very, I'm, I'm very bullish about it. I was very afraid of technology until I started to think about it in a way that um, I was afraid of technology because I had kids. And then you're just like, oh my God, what's it going to do with my kids? And all, all these kinds of questions. And then I was encouraged by it because I, start, I really do think about it as a means to an end, right? And I think that that's our opportunity to sort of like 
continue to to create a better place, a better world, more opportunity. I also think that kids' brains are evolving quicker, you know, than our generation. Like there are my daughter's doing math and she's six. She's doing things I was doing in third grade. And it's probably because they expect her to be coding, you know, when she's eight. You know what I mean? And some kids are coding at six. So it's like we're continuing to sort of evolve and and, and see new opportunities open up with amazing uh just an amazing generation of thinkers. Yeah, I think with all of the gender um, arguments around gender that are happening right now and identification, it really all boils down to this idea of liberty and justice for all. And I feel like we're like that, it's that pain, right? The threshold for pain for others who, who are calcified, they don't want to change. They're really, they're, they're feeling stung. But I'm saying we need to have these arguments. Diversity is Canada's strength. It's America's strength. And when we get to that point of balancing out, you know, liberty and justice for all and the good, the welfare, promoting for the good welfare of, of all of us, I think that, you know, we're in the midst of this argument and gender is kind of really leading the way through there. And it's, I don't know, it's exciting to see it's changing language. Language is always, everyone thinks that, oh, language is mally. It's, 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 this is the way it is, but it's always changing. And I don't know, it's exciting to be a part of it and, and see it all happen. And, you know, have my daughter yell at me when I say the wrong thing, but you know, it's all, it's all part of it. Yeah. Yeah. You can't say that. I know. <laughs> I know. And I was like, well, teach me. So, you know, just keep an open mind. Don't yell at me. And it's all good. Um, Lionel, when you go back to the, the Lionel of finishing up your thesis of the nightclub and knowing everything that you know now and kind of where you're going and where you're inspired and how you're making all these changes and helping people identify their threshold for pain, what do you go back to that Lionel who just finished the, their thesis? What, what advice do you give your younger self? So just an interesting note on that is my thesis, if you boil it down to one sentence, was called well, in one sense, it's called where we live, where we work, where we play. And it was, what is the effect of the virtual world on our real world? Well, here I am, uh, 94, like I graduated in 94, however long ago that was. I'm still practicing my thesis. I'm still talking about the physical and digital intersections of our world. So number one, if you're a student, choose your thesis wisely. Make sure it's something that you're passionate about. Because if you're lucky, you'll be studying your thesis for the rest of your life, right? Setting you up for the foundation of the body of your work, right? And if you're going to be a creative. Secondly, um, the most important thing you'll ever design is your own path, right? There's no, there's no path out there. It's not like there's like, I'll get in and I'll make my way and I'll work up. There's a, it's, it's a, it's a, you got to trailblaze exactly where you think you want to go. And every decision you make along the way is a part of a story that is you, right? And so often now I just see kids make bad, bad decisions, not because they happen to be leaving I crave or we, we encourage people to go chase some dreams. It's more just like you have to understand that you're crafting your story and you're crafting the body of work that will be you, right? And I think right now, like just commitment, like people don't get that. They don't understand what you can glean out of a moment and when to call it over and to move on to the next one. And so I think it's super, super important, you know, and not, and not to be linear. It's not a linear thing. It's like tacking up wind on the sailboat. You got to tack, tack, tack to get to your direction. You're not just going to point the sailboat up when you get there. And I just really believe that 
more kids would spend more time thinking about what that path's going to be without worrying about what the ultimate destination is. I would even say there is no ultimate destination because whenever you think you've gotten there, there's somewhere else to go on our journey and our path. I like the idea of that path. Hmm. Uh, hey, Lionel, so how can people find you and find iCrave? Well, you can, uh, you can find, that's a good question. How do you find me? Well, you find me at iCrave, which is www.icrave.com. And if you need to email me, I'm Lionel at iCrave. Dot com. So that's easy enough. Wonderful. And we'll also put your uh, LinkedIn and, and Twitter up on the show notes as well. Um, hey, Lionel, this has been freaking amazing. I knew this would be an amazing conversation from when we sat down next to each other randomly at dinner in Tahoe. I just want to say thank you so much. Thank you, my friend. It's been great. I appreciate you taking the time with me. Oh, my pleasure. And I also want to thank our listeners. If this talk has evolved your idea on delivering or defining what hospitality is, uh, please share it with someone else, send it to a friend. Thank you, everyone. We'll catch you next time. <music>